Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. That statement of Psalm 26, 8 continually reminds us, doesn't it, of the blessed privilege we have. And as Roger mentioned, as he led us in prayer, how thankful we each can be this evening that all is well with us. Our disposition of heart and mind has brought us to this place. And hopefully we'll be able to leave having been able to say how far better it is that we were able to come and that we took advantage of that opportunity that was presented to us. As you know, by way of the statements in the bulletin as well as those, for quite a few weeks now on the Sunday evening lessons, we've been giving some attention to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It is to that particular book I would point your attention again as we come to the ninth lesson in this series. We already have studied to this point from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 24. As we've looked at half the book of Ezekiel, we truly have found some scintillating truths, some powerful appreciations, and I've tried to highlight, in perhaps one of the briefest ways possible, some of those issues that you've seen with me to this point. In particular, as we look through the nature of those chapters, we've seen everything from the nature of Ezekiel's call to the characteristic nature of God's judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah because of their sins. God had impressed upon the mind of Ezekiel, and hopefully by way of impression also on the mind of others, about the reason for this judgment. You and I do not serve a whimsical God. He does not go from here to yon without any reason for doing so. Jerusalem was being judged because of her sins. God wasn't being fanatical. He wasn't being overtly harsh. He was simply carrying out that which His judgment and His mercy demands. Isn't it interesting in light of that? We closed our last lesson by looking at chapters 22, 23, and 24, when on that occasion we were able to see the matter of a boiling pot and the interesting issue concerning the very wife of Ezekiel. Every single element, though, in those first 24 chapters has surrounded the nature of judgment upon the kingdom of Judah, the nature of Jerusalem. So if you'd like to embed that part in your mind, that would at least cover the first half of the book of Ezekiel. Those chapters, again, surround God's judgment upon Jerusalem and on Judah. One can't help being the, the wonder, what about the last 24 chapters of the book? You might take note rather quickly that it'll not take us nine more lessons to complete this because the last chapters roll very, very quickly. So much so that in fact this evening we'll cover chapters 25 to 32. Those eight chapters can be covered very, very easily by way of a single set of ideas. Beyond that, we'll look then at the remaining chapters, not all in one lesson, but as we do so we shall again find that God's message to the people can easily be summarized by taking a number of those chapters all at once. But for tonight, as we come to chapters 25 to 32, the singular message out of these eight chapters surrounds very clearly and very powerful the, the notion of God's judgment upon the nations. His interest for these eight chapters now will not be Jerusalem. He's handled that in the previous 24. These chapters focus the spotlight very clearly upon the nations that are surrounding Judah. What does God think of their activities? How does He respond to their choices? We shall find His messages are exceedingly clear, 
And not only that, a number of lessons that you and I will quickly extract and attempt to utilize for ourselves. As you begin to look at this particular slide, may I suggest that the very first nation up for discussion tonight, the one that begins chapter number 25, is the nation of Ammon. A-M-M-O-N, and the first seven verses of chapter 25 bring before us the nature and the characteristic judgment of God upon them. You might recall briefly some interesting aspects of Ammon. First of all, you might remember that they, in fact, bore a degree of kinship to the actual children of Israel. In fact, they descended from Lot. And Lot, of course, was the first cousin of Isaac. And so it was that if one traced it back to the very father of Abraham, you'll find that the two lines merge. And so you'll notice distantly these people bore a kinship, but they too had faltered and failed in their understanding and their consideration of the things of God. You'll notice immediately perhaps that this map might be of some help to you. I've tried to select a map. I'm hopeful that some of the words will be large enough for you to see a few of the aspects of it. And hopefully to facilitate that, I'm going to use a pointer, so we'll see how successful that works. I'll try to point to Ammon. You'll notice that I'm circling a rather large word, and thus we find that it was nestled just to the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and just perhaps slightly north thereof as well. But you'll notice this nation was relatively near to the nation of Israel. Again, if you'll appreciate just across that Jordan River, you'll notice that here's Jerusalem. So from Jerusalem to Ammon was really not very far. And yet this nation was a thorn, if you please, in the side of Jerusalem. So much so that you might remember that a portion of the title of tonight's lesson, as Eddie read to us a moment ago, was taken from Ezekiel 28 when God said, These nations will not be a prick in your side, a thorn in your side anymore. Ammon was a troubling nation to Israel. You and I remember that much was said about them in the earlier sagas of the Old Testament. Back when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, one of the nations that they had to deal with was the Ammonites. And you might recall the Ammonites showed no favor to Israel. They typically despised them. They typically had a great deal of hatred toward them. And so in verses 1 to 7 of Ezekiel 25, God now makes some powerful statements of His judgment on the Ammonite nation. I've tried to summarize some of the main thoughts and ideas on it. Let's revisit briefly that previous slide, if we might. These people, specifically, God says, the Ammonites, they found great joy at the problems that Jerusalem was suffering. So much so that God specifically says that when Jerusalem, in fact, dealt with all those issues and problems, these Ammonites rejoiced. And not only that, when the temple itself was profaned, the Ammonites celebrated God simply will not tolerate that. And so you'll notice that God in verses 5, 6, and 7 asserts that this nation will be utterly and completely destroyed. Perhaps this would be a fair time to pause to comment that if God will not tolerate wickedness and ungodliness in His own people, He surely won't tolerate it in the heathen. 
And so it was that through 24 chapters, he's directed his attention to the evils of Judah. But now, these other nations, and they too were ungodly. They too were filled with iniquity, and God's not going to tolerate it in them at all. At the close of verse number 7, the attention of heaven is turned rather quickly to another nation. This time, you'll notice in verse 8, it's the Moabites, the nation of Moab, M-O-A-B. You'll notice thus on this slide, it perhaps is fair to say that again, God was not well pleased at all with the choices that the Moabite nation had made. Let me again revisit, if I might, that map, and let's identify where these Moabites were located. Back to that same map that we were utilizing earlier. If you recall where you observed Ammon to be, which again was here, notice just south of it, in rather large letters, is Moab. So these two were neighbors. Ammon and Moab thus were both on the eastern side of that Jordan River slash Dead Sea, and thus they both were relatively near the city of Jerusalem as well as the nation of Judah. They too had often been a great problem to the Israelites. They too had frequently opposed Israel, made their way so much more difficult than it had to be. For those reasons, as we revisit that previous slide, might we think again about what God here had to say to them. One of the things particularly here that drew the attention of heaven was this interesting statement. The Moabites likened Judah to the heathen nations. They saw nothing special about Judah. They saw nothing ex extraordinary about them. They looked upon the people of Judah and all the, the blessings and promises that they received just as they would have looked on any other nation of the earth. You'll notice again that that people, however, was God's chosen people. They were the ones on whom God had showed such favor and mercy. For those reasons, you'll notice, God promised here to Moab, you will be overrun with foreigners. And in addition to that, you'll notice that as they overrun and overtake and conquer you, my judgment will be fierce and my wrath will be thorough. All of that's found in verses 8 through 11 of Ezekiel chapter 25. Following these two, we next come to a rapid mention of two additional nations. On the one hand is Edom, and finally is the Philistines. Let's think about Edom for just a moment. We've already learned that there was a kinship that existed between the Israelites and these other two. Remember, Moab and Ammon were brothers. Lot was their father, and again, both had distant kinship to Abraham. They were again first cousins to Isaac. As you come to Edom, the kinship was even closer. Remember, that was Esau, the very brother, of course, of Jacob. Isn't it interesting, though, in light of that, we too here encounter a people who so often had presented hardship, hatred, and difficulty to the people of God. I would again invite you to perhaps look briefly at the geography of where this was located as well. Again, as we look at that same map we have done so before, you'll notice our motion to this point has been the following. Let me retrace. We had looked so far at Ammon. And then we looked at Moab, and now as we add to that, Edom is here. So we have basically moved in the direction south. Now, Edom, of course, was quite a bit further uh, as measured from Jerusalem, but nonetheless, they were well-known peoples in that day and time. And in fact, the geography of Edom 
as you perhaps can tell from the map. Notice the white areas. It was very mountainous. And the Edomite people were often overwhelmed with pride. They felt as though no one could defeat them. No one could come against them. No one would be able, in fact, to overtake them. Because no matter which way you traveled to get to their capital city, which was Petra, you had to travel through cliff-like corridors, and thus they could always spot the enemy coming. They could always tell when the enemy was approaching. And all they had to do was just perch themselves on those cliffs and just fire away at the approaching enemy. For that reason, they were a people often overwhelmed with pride and arrogance. So much so that here God says, Though you may not think it so, I will bring you down. And God did that very thing to the Edomites. As we revisit that previous slide, notice again some of the things that God said to them. They were guilty of taking vengeance against God's people. Whenever God's people had enjoyed even minor victories over them, these people arrayed themselves and tried to take revenge upon the very people of God. In so doing, you'll notice here, they did so with hatred. They did so with despite in their heart. Isn't that interesting? Again, this was the very people descended from the brother of Jacob. You would think that there might have been some familial favor, but there was none. In fact, you might remember that as the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, one of the nations through whose land they desired to pass was the Edomites. We, in fact, would like to pass peaceably, and the Edomites would not permit it. For all that hatred, you'll notice here, God promised to take vengeance upon them just as they had taken vengeance on God's people. With all that said, perhaps it brings us to observe that as that chapter rolls rather quickly to its conclusion, you observe that the Philistines also were guilty of the same, namely taking vengeance on God's people. In verses 15, 16, and 17 highlight that God promised also to take vengeance upon them. Let's revisit that map and look at where the Philistines were located. Before, as we've looked at those nations that have rested on the eastern side of that Jordan River, we have covered Ammon, Moab, and Edom. If you now identify where the Philistines were located, they were a very militaristically minded people nestled on the very shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Written there in a diagonal fashion is the Philistines. So they were positioned over here. They too were often a people that gave Israel great problems. David had to battle them. Solomon, in fact, had to deal with them. Prior to that, the judges also faced them on more than one occasion. It is the case, as you think about the Philistines, they too were very prideful as they related to the people of Israel. You'll notice in chapter 25, though, God has dealt with them swiftly and quickly. As you come to the slide that was in between these two, you notice that chapter number 26 takes up a completely different nation. God's judgment again comes upon these nations and He leaves none of them out of consideration. You'll notice that, however, there is some very interesting distinctions here. Before each one of these previous nations, God seemingly hasn't had much to say that's taken at least a long time to say it. 
the statements to Moab, to the Philistines, to the Edomites, they all were just a few verses. As you and I take up chapter 26, we find that a different scenario was before us. From chapter 26, verse 1, to chapter 28, verse 19, is God's inspired judgment upon the nation of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Let me revisit the map and identify where Tyre was located. This same map, I thought, did a fair job of highlighting these particular nations. And as you and I have looked at the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the others, it's almost as if we are completing a circle. Again, not to belabor the point, but we've gone from here to here and now back over to here. Once you pass the Philistines and come to the nation of Tyre, it might even be fair to say that this was almost nothing much larger than a single city located right there. Clearly, it was positioned in Phoenicia, and it was an ancient and well-known city. So much so that here three chapters are devoted to God's consideration of this city of Tyre. And as the King James reads it, you'll notice it spells it Tyrus, T-Y-R-U-S, but all of that is a reference to the city of Tyre. As we make a few comments about it, we shall, of course, make some historical references and highlight some of the things mentioned in these chapters about the nation of Tyre. Revisiting that previous slide. Tyre, we find rather quickly in chapter 26, rejoiced and did so in a rather amazing fashion over the brokenness of Jerusalem. Tyre celebrated when Jerusalem had problems. Tyre, in fact, rejoiced when the temple and other things found themselves in disrepair and hard times. Here again was a nation, a people, if you please, who in fact celebrated over the difficulties of the ancient chosen race. You'll notice that God, however, spends a great deal of time stating what would be done to Tyre. In addition to just saying it would be destroyed, He describes it in some amazingly detailed ways. I've tried to select just a few of the main points. First of all, it'll be removed completely. But that'll be done in the following way. First, it's going to be cast into the sea. That alone is intriguing. But in addition, it says it would never be rebuilt. And in addition to all of that, many nations ultimately would raise their forces against her. It's at this point, let me at least ask, for you and I to consider the following. It is there stated that it would be cast into the sea. Now, was it the case that this prophecy of God, this statement from heaven was fulfilled? Was it the case that, in fact, that city was at some point in the future from Ezekiel's chapter 26 cast into the sea? I've always found it an amazing thing when historically the city of Tyre ultimately met her destruction in some very unusual ways. If I might paint a little bit of that picture, we find in these chapters that God, for one thing, said that among those nations that would come against her, the Babylonians, as led by Nebuchadnezzar, would be one of them. And so historically, we do know that Nebuchadnezzar, for 13 years, he besieged the city of Tyre. He brought his forces against her. He, in fact, tried to surround her and ultimately bring her into subjection. And although he had a measure of success, the success was not total. Tyre survived the besiegement. 
That alone is rather astounding as one indication of the interior strength of the city of Tyre. But might we say, not too many years later, the Grecian Empire came on the scene as led ultimately by Alexander the Great. He too arrayed his forces against Tyre. And this time, isn't it interesting that one of the things that Alexander did was, historically, the city of Tyre had a very interesting and unusual position. Part of the city was on land, and part of it actually existed on a little bitty island not too far from the shore. And so, any time a particular land area, the part of the city on land was attacked, they would just cross the bridge over to the sea portion, and they would remain safe over there. They were a fantastic group of people in terms of their abilities on the water. They could conduct ships well. They had great success in fighting as long as it was on, on water. Alexander did this. He brought ships against her to occupy her attention, and then he took the land part of Tyre and threw it into the water and made a land bridge so that he could march his troops over to her. He had a great deal of success, needless to say. But isn't it interesting that she was cast into the sea? just as God had foretold she would be done. Isn't it rather fascinating beyond that that you begin to notice that the nations would be utterly astounded at her fall? The city of Tyre for a number of centuries had had such military success and such economic success that many, many nations were going to be astounded when she finally fell. Tyre was rich. It was a wealthy city. In fact, you might remember that some of the things well known in the Phoenician area were the famous purple and blue that kings and others wore because right there in the ocean, the necessary mollusks could be collected that made that possible. Might we be quick to say, Tyre had been given so very much by God. She was blessed greatly, but she wasted her provisions. Maybe this is an opportune time to assert that something similar is needful for you and me to recall as well. Aren't you and I reminded to walk circumspectly, redeeming the time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16? Just as she had wasted her talents, so too today you and I can be guilty of the same. As you look at all these statements concerning Tyre, again, my descriptions have been exceedingly brief. As you come to the next nation, the nation of Sidon, some read that as Zidon, spelled with a Z. Either way, we're talking again about the place that you and I might notice again on our map. At this point, as we've completed much about a circle, let's continue that because, of course, here was Tyre. As you look, of course, at Sidon, it is located here. So you'll notice, at least on this map, we've gone from the very bottom at Edom to the very top at Sidon. These two cities, Tyre and Sidon, were again very well known in the ancient era. And Sidon, too, is a place on which the wrath of God was promised to come. Revisiting that previous slide again. In chapter 28, verses 20 and following, God says something about Sidon. And in particular, the main matter that God mentions relative to her was she had failed to glorify God. The opportunities given, the privileges that were set forth, and she had failed all along to do so. 
we should revisit that thought a bit later in the lesson, but for now, isn't it amazing that these nations, these regions surrounding Jerusalem have brought us to appreciate the very text that Eddie read for us earlier. Why was God bringing His judgment upon all these nations and upon all these cities? The reason is given in verses 24 to 26 of Ezekiel 28. It says, And there shall be no more a pricking briar unto the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn of all that are round about them, that despise them, and they shall know that I am the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God, When I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell safely therein. These nations had caused God's people to dwell without safety. They'd been a thorn in their side and a briar in their consideration. They had been so much problem, but God says, once my people return, these nations are not going to bother them anymore. I would invite you to think about the blessed promise of enjoyment and safety that God makes to His own people through a passage like that one. As you close that chapter with me and come to the end of chapter 28, it brings us to a map that we've seen on so many occasions already in the lesson this evening. These nations that we have discussed so far are nations, however, for which God's exhaustive discussion was not completed. For He continues in chapter 29, in addition to these other nations that we've mentioned to this point, beginning in chapter number 29, and you'll notice this too continues for quite some time, really all the way to near the end of chapter 32, God now makes mention of the judgment upon Egypt, that nation of Egypt. At this point, may we then say rather quickly that there's much that you and I probably remember about the nation of Egypt. Again, maybe a map would be in order. I've tried to choose a map that I thought would highlight Egypt, since that's the place that we're interested in seeing. It also, however, shows a little bit about where the land of Canaan is. Again, this case, place of Canaan is here, so Jerusalem is about right there. But you'll notice over here is the rather well-known and rather ancient nation of Egypt. You and I have known it well ever since certainly the closing chapters of Genesis. It is a well-known land, and that map alone highlights one of the things for which the nation was known and one of the things in which she took such great comfort. This rather majestic Nile River, it provided for her what she thought was all the sustenance that she needed. She got her water from it. She found, of course, the fish and the other things necessary. It made life for the trees that they could water with it. As you think about all of that, though, that very matter in pride is what we find mentioned here as well. Among the things that God has to say about Egypt, I find it intriguing that one of the things mentioned is she was unreliable to Israel. There were a number of times, as we learn especially in the book of Jeremiah, that the nation of Israel actually turned to Egypt for help, extending a hand, asking, would you come and help us? And on some of those occasions, Egypt promised that she would, but she never did. And on some of those occasions, Egypt took advantage of Israel when she was in a weakened condition. God says, Israel tried to lean on you, and you were unreliable. 
Isn't it interesting how something as innocently sounding as that could still be greatly useful to you and to me? Unreliability. God wanted His ancient people of Israel to be people of their word, that they would carry out that which they promised. And here Egypt had failed on that account. Beyond that, you'll notice with me that there is a rather amazing comparison set forth in chapter 29. You and I remember one of the best known things about the nation of Israel was she came out of Egypt and then wandered in a wilderness for 40 years before arriving at the promised land. God uses that pattern to describe what was going to happen to Egypt. In particular, He says, Just as my people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Egypt, you will be punished, and it shall last for 40 years. It will consume a period of time likened unto that 40-year period that my people suffered after leaving your land. As that degree of comparison is made, it next brought the following set of statements. In this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar came against Tyre. You and I notice, we've already noticed that in the previous chapters. But then Nebuchadnezzar was to come also against Egypt and against the allies of Egypt. All of that came to pass, didn't it? Historically, we know it well that those things did transpire. It might be wise again to pause at this point and say that due to statements like that, there have been those that have argued that Ezekiel had to have been written after all those things happened. You and I know that's not the case. God delivered to Ezekiel the fact it was to happen and it transpired exactly as He said it would. It's almost as if it was history written before its time. You'll notice furthermore, Egypt was going to be soundly defeated. And in addition to being defeated, they were also going to be scattered. It is at that point that that brings us to the following observations. A comparison is made between Egypt and another nation with which you and I are very familiar. The nation of Assyria. By this time, Assyria had already been resoundingly destroyed. They had already been wiped off the face of the earth. There was no longer an Assyrian kingdom. It was gone. God says, guess what, Egypt? I'm going to do to you the same thing that I just did to the Assyrians. Total and utter annihilation. It is interesting, of course, in the centuries since, Egypt has been rebuilt. We know, of course, there is a nation in Egypt today. Might we say, as you come near the close of that, the certainty of the destruction was highlighted overwhelmingly. And that certainty again takes us back to this map. We had seen it just a moment ago. But as you'll notice, the location of Egypt, a rather sizable nation in many ways, but yet she had arrayed her forces against God and His people one too many times. She was now, of course, herself going to meet the matter of God's judgment on that point. As you come to the close of chapter 32, as I promised, God's dealing with all these nations has been rather swift, and our comments have been reasonably brief. But I thought it wise to close the lesson, at least in one final section, by at least extracting a point or two and using it to help you and me. Because even these Old Testament matters have significance. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What are at least a few of the thoughts that might come to us? 
May I suggest to you that surely one of them must be this. We notice that God rules over the kingdoms of this earth. We know that God rules over His people and He demanded that they show allegiance and obedience to Him. But notice here were other nations, Tyre, Sidon, Felicia, Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and others, and every one of them were under the thumb of God inasmuch as they answered to Him. It still is true, isn't it, that our God rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. That's stated three times in Daniel chapter 4, verses 17, verse 25, and verse 31 and 32. As you and I then keep that thought in mind, notice at the top, God thus is able to raise up leaders. He is able to depose them, though, when they do not do His bidding. He is able to raise up empires and also to scatter them. Our God is able to do that. It's always been a remarkable and comforting thing that our founding fathers knew that well. And so it was that they opened each one of the conventions in Philadelphia with a prayer beseeching the help and aid of God for a fledgling new nation. For they knew, just as Benjamin Franklin so aptly stated, that if a sparrow cannot fall without his knowledge, surely no nation can rise without it. And no wonder that man led prayers and the others were so often beseeching God for His blessings on a nation that they wished to raise. Today, may you and I continue to pray for our kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all honesty and godliness. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. Isn't it interesting beyond that? You and I notice that this does show that God was very well aware of the activities in these nations, but He was also desirous that they might have the desire to follow Him. God didn't just show hatred to them. Remember, He even sent prophets in some occasions to preach to those nations like He did Nineveh. But at this point, might we say that God has given us the greatest commission of all toward that end, hasn't He? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. You and I can thus feel so honored that we can support a missionary that goes to India or China or Russia or Australia or somewhere to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8. For just as God was concerned about the nations, then He still loves people and He wants them to come to know His Son and He wants them to be saved. Isn't it amazing that perhaps another lesson is this? God made demands of those foreign nations. We know well He demanded much of His own people. We've been studying in Leviticus on Sunday morning and we know what He expected of them relative to their sacrifices and relative to their behavior. Notice, He judged these nations because they failed. They showed vengeance. They showed hatred. They, in fact, showed no mercy. For that, God was judging them. Even though they lived under a patriarchal dispensation, if you please, it was the case that God had demands of them. Today, we know He demands of us just as surely as He has demands of all under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That statement and the demands of God highlight for us that in Nahum 1 verse 3, did not their God say, I will not in any wise acquit those who are guilty? That was stated relative to a foreign nation, wasn't it? As you and I come to perhaps another quick lesson, 
one of the things that struck me so often as I was studying the various natures of these nations was God frequently mentioned their arrogance and their pride. Isn't it still true that just as surely as one lifts himself up, he is soon to fall? We know on so many occasions, just as truly as it's taught in the New Testament in Luke 11, that on that occasion, isn't it reminded of us that he who exalts himself shall be abased, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Just as surely as these nations dwelt in that much pride, may you and I not be guilty of that. Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, to quote Romans 12, verse 3. Perhaps in fairness to that, isn't it amazing that God held a watchful eye out for His people? That's the very lesson text, that again, that was read earlier. Ezekiel 28, verses 24 and following. Notice God was removing the thorns and the briars so that His people could dwell in safety. Shouldn't you and I then want to be a member of that body that dwells in safety today? The only one promised entrance into heaven, the only one promised salvation, the blessed church of our Lord, the church of Christ, Romans 16, 16. Thus you and I, if we wish to dwell in safety, we had better be within the safe and friendly confines of that organization. The title of the lesson was, No Pricking Briar and also no thorn. Are you suffering beneath thorns and briars today? Is your life in such a way that you feel not at ease? Is it such that you know that something isn't right? Your soul is being disturbed, if you please, moment by moment, because you know that it's being pricked by the briars of Satan. You do, you do know surely, if that's the case, that if you were to pass away, if you were to die, heaven is not yours. I say that with all candidness, but with all desire as well. That you'll make things right with God while you have the opportunity and the time. The invitation is extended in this very evening, just as surely as we've looked through eight chapters of Ezekiel, we have seen God is a God of judgment. That, of course, is going to be known by every being on the day of judgment. Although there are those now who claim to turn a blind eye to God, they don't think there is any such thing as judgment they'll be the first to confess that they were wrong come the day of judgment. They'll be the first ones to realize I made a fatal mistake in life when I did not take advantage of the opportunities that were presented me. Don't find yourself in that predicament. There will be no turning around at that point. There will be nothing you can do to make it right. The sentence will be declared. Eternity will be sure. And so it is tonight, if your heart is being tugged at by the gospel, if your heart is being pricked by the things that you've heard, don't turn from it. Why not turn to it? Allow those thorns to be pulled out one by one by the one who can remove them, Jesus the Savior. Did He not say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls." Matthew 11, 28-30. This evening, as we close this lesson, may we issue that invitation just as surely as God had mentioned it so often to peoples before this, but the time for any response had gone. Don't let that happen to yourself. If you need to respond tonight, the plan of salvation reads as simple as this. Believe in, uh, with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ. 
Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Messiah, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have at one time known what that was like, but right now you just don't much remember a lot about it, why not come back to your first love? Don't disgrace the church. Don't disgrace your Lord any longer. Why not come even now while together we stand together and while we sing?